Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Webcast Series held on January 24, 2018, focusing on the new U.S. interest expense limitations. The panelists for the webcast were Mike DeFranzo, a PwC tax principal and leader of our Washington National Tax Services International Tax Service Practice, Rebecca Lee, a PwC tax principal focusing on international tax issues, Krishnan Chandrasekhar, a PwC tax principal and our Global Financial Services and Financial Transactions Transfer Pricing Leader, and Eileen Fine, a director focusing on international tax issues. This podcast excerpt consists of a discussion among the panelists on the interest expense limitation basics and computational and numbers issues. A lot to get through today, but we're going to do the best we can to keep moving along. And so with that, I'd like to uh, turn it over to Eileen, who's going to talk about interest expense limitation basics. Thanks, Mike. So we're going to spend a couple minutes just going through the statutory framework of Section 163J. So Section 163J, as it's currently drafted, is actually an amendment to um, a prior version of 163J. So just for ease of conversation, we'll refer to old 163J, which was the law in effect um, as of December 31, 2017. And then we will refer to new 163J as the law that's currently in effect um, as of January 1, 2018. So just very generally, unlike old Section 163J, new Section 163J applies to all taxpayers, not just corporations. It applies to related party interest and third-party interest. Um, so if you can be just U.S. corporation with no global operations, and you will be subject to Section 163J for your interest deductions. Uh, so what does it do? 163J creates a limitation for the amount of interest that you can actually deduct in any given year. The computation for the deduction is the sum of your business interest income plus 30% of adjusted taxable income for the tax year plus uh, floor plan financing interest. Now, something interesting to note here, or not so interesting, is that people really think about uh, this floor plan financing interest as an exception, but the way it's worded and its placement in the statute, it's really a computational item as opposed to a, a clear carve-out um, from the definition of trade or business. And for those of you who don't know, floor plan financing is debt incurred um, used to finance the acquisition of a motor vehicle. So think I'm mean, car companies, right? I mean, that, that's the companies that incur floor plan financing. Uh, adjusted taxable income is defined as your taxable income uh, without regard to uh, non-trader business income, which we will talk about a little bit later on. Uh, your business interest income and expense, so you back that out of your taxable income. Uh, your NOLs, your 199A deduction, which is a pass-through item, uh, and depreciation, amortization, and depletion. Now, th this is an important point because your depreciation is an add-back only until January 1, 2022. After that point, uh, your depreciation is not an add back, so your limitation won't be as generous um, for taxable years uh, starting January 1, 2022 and going forward. And we'll see an example of that a bit later on that Chris is going to take us through. Um, 
So what happens? You've computed your calculation. Now what do you do? Um, you take, you can deduct the amount that the computation allows you to deduct. If you have interest expense that uh, you can't currently deduct, you can carry that forward indefinitely. And this is a provision that's similar to uh, old 163J. Um, uh, certain taxpayers are exempt from 163J, in addition to the list that we're going to go through um, uh, in, in a bit, uh, small taxpayers, so those taxpayers uh, with average gross receipts of $25 million or less are exempt. And as I mentioned before, um, this provision applies to both related party and unrelated party debt. Um, it also does not apply to investment interest income and uh, certain trades or businesses, which we'll, um, we're going to jump to next. Um, so like I mentioned um, a couple minutes ago, floor plan financing not really a true exemption so much as a computational item. Um, again, your small small taxpayers. Investment interest. So setting, setting this point up a bit, Section 163J historically only applied to U.S. corporate taxpayers and foreign corporate taxpayers that had effectively connected income, so were treated like a U.S. Tax, a U.S. corporation for tax purposes. With the expansion of 163J to all taxpayers, the drafters really needed to make a distinction between investment interest and trader business interest because only a non-corporate taxpayer can actually have um, investment interest and investment interest income under Section 163D. Um, so, so we just we need to keep that point in mind, and that has implications in the pass-through context as well. And certainly, I think we can all agree that you needed a statutory rule to help provide the dividing lines, because otherwise, it's not entirely clear under all the available case law that a corporation couldn't earn something that looks kind of like investment interest, had the cross-reference been generically to 163D and not picked up the fact that corporations don't have interest that is treated as investment interest expense. And, and there is a, an important footnote in the conference report that says that a corporation, um, a corporation's business interest income and business interest expense is going to be properly allocable to the trader business. So if you're a corporation, based on that footnote, all of your interest income and your interest expense is going to be trader business interest income and trader business interest expense. Um, other, um, other taxpayers who are exempt, taxpayers in the employee services business, uh, certain regulated utilities, and uh, an electing real property and farming business. Um, note that it is by election, it's not automatic. An interesting issue that's coming up on the real property side is that um, the, the definition of real property trader business refers you to section 469C7C, which has a definition of a real property trader business. That definition is really what you think of as a company that, um, buys and sells real estate, a company that's um, hotel management, um, a company that's uh, constructing homes or buildings, right? So, so really your, your typical uh, real property business. The issue that's coming up, though, is how do you define real property, right? We, we have this definition of real property trader business, but can you look to other provisions of the code for just that real property piece? So for example, um, if you looked at Section 897, um, for those of you who are non-inbound, uh, Section 897 is a provision uh, 
that applies to uh, U.S. corporations and their foreign shareholders and imposes tax on the disposition of an interest in a U.S. corporation that's a U.S. real property holding company. So the definition of real property under 897 is very broad. And you don't necessarily have to be a company in the real estate business to be a U.S. real property holding company. For example, you could be an energy company. Um, you could have a lot of uh, mining contracts, and those mining contracts could be U.S. real property interests, and that would cause you to be a real property holding company. You could be a retail business, and you could own your own buildings, and that the value of your buildings causes you to be a U.S. real property holding company. So we're getting a lot of those questions. It's really interesting. Um, because we, we just don't know if we can use this very broad definition. If you, if you're in a situation where you prefer to be a real, where you prefer and you think that you can be a real property uh, business because your assets are primarily U.S. real property interests under Section 897, there are some trade-offs here. So you need to um, think about the other provisions in the Tax Reform Act that um, will apply to real property trader business, such as potentially the loss of bonus depreciation. So just some things, it's kind of a give, give or take here. Um, an interesting point is that the statute refers to a taxpayer, but it doesn't really tell you who the taxpayer is. If you're an individual, then clearly you're the taxpayer. But if you're a corporation who's filing a consolidated return, um, th there's no there's no provision that says a consolidated group is treated as a single taxpayer. Under old, under old Section 163J, we, we have that rule specifically telling you um, that a consolidated group is, is one taxpayer for this purpose, so you would compute the limitation at the consolidated level. There's no, um, there's no provision in the, statute that, in the new statute that tells us this, but in the conference report, um, there's a, a suggestion or actually very clear language that says if you file a consolidated return that you would test and apply the limitation at the consolidated level. It's really unclear how you get there because, again, there's nothing in the statute that would um, really allow the JCT to describe it that way other than just that just generally makes sense. Um, but hopefully we'll get some guidance on this point. <laughs> Okay, so uh, but hopefully we'll get some guidance. Going, so I'm keep waiting for guidance on a lot of this. Um, so, Krish, as the, the global leader of our financial services and financial transactions, you got nominated to take us through yeah. some numbers. Yeah. Um, sure. So, yeah, I thought I'd spend 30 seconds or a minute on this, and I don't think it's a coincidence that I got to do the numbers because this is the one part, which is it's, it's the really simple part of all the various computations you have to do, so they felt that even a transfer pricing guy could explain this one. Um, so really quickly, just going through the numbers here, uh, we've assumed some numbers on business interest expense and business interest income, but as, as intuition would indicate for once on, on, on this one, uh, the computation starts with taxable income, which is in row four in this example, um, and uh, makes certain adjustments to the extent there's non-trade income, like it was discussed earlier, uh, you'd have to exclude that. You add back business interest expense. It is a netting concept, so you get to offset with business interest income. Uh, to the extent there's annual deductions, you account for them. Um, and as Eileen noted earlier as well, up until Jan 1, 2022, uh, there's the add back for depreciation, amortization, and depletion. So in our example, the adjusted taxable income uh, defined uh, uh, here is 500. 
uh, and the limitation would be 30% off this plus the business interest income at back. So that's, in our example, 160, and the difference between that um, and the total business interest expense of 250 is the 90 that gets to get carried forward um, indefinitely under the provisions. Only difference between this example um, and what is applicable after Jan 1, 2022, is you no longer get the add back for depreciation and amortization. So that's the key uh, mechanics, if you will. Um, I thought putting kind of the economics lens on, wanted to put some context on what this uh, translates to if one were to convert this limitation into what were coverage metrics in the capital markets and the debt markets last year. So to level set, a 30% limitation here in treasury parlance translates to a coverage ratio, if you will, of 3.3. So for every dollar of deduction you want to take, you need $3.33 of EBITDA for the first four years and then EBIT for the years after that. So if I looked at, if the team looked at um, all the debt market transactions that happened last year, we wanted to see what were the types of borrowers that might get impacted right away versus that might have some room on this, on this provision. And interestingly, if you start with large corporate borrowers last year, uh, so think about investment-grade borrowers, greater than $50 million of earnings a year, uh, this didn't seem to be a very constraining limitation. So the average coverage metric that we observed in deals last year was way north of 3.3. It was in the fours often uh, as a, in, in, in uh, large corporate borrowers last year. Where, where things start to uh, inflect a little bit was once you get to large borrowers, but in the below investment grade space, so the highly levered borrowers, EBITDA became less of a constraint still. Uh, the multiples were still north of four even in most cases on average. Uh, but if you saw their EBIT coverage metric, you were right around 3.3 last year. Uh, for the average large corporate, you know, high-yield borrower. And then where it got really interesting was if I looked at all the middle market deals last year, even the average EBITDA multiple was below the coverage metric. Um, similarly, LBO deals, the average metric was below um, uh, this, this implied multiple here. So what's the takeaway, I guess, looking at all these data points? Uh, generally considered to be more expansive than what was expected before, especially for the large borrowers uh, and investment-grade borrowers. But there is a rich part of participants in the debt markets where, uh, you know, if you look at middle market borrowers, LBO borrowers, this would impact right away because they're, uh, you know, the average borrower is having uh, coverage ratios that were already below what's being suggested here. So that's observation one here on, on what happened in the markets last year. I think a related consideration is I think we need to recognize that these metrics are a result of a really low interest rate environment. Uh, so the interest rate environment uh, has been very favorable for borrowers, um, and this limitation is not indexed to any base rate. So as rates go up, uh, taxpayers that may not be currently impacted might start to see an impact. So it's a bit dynamic. You ought to keep track of, uh, of the impact of rising rates on your kind of total cost of funding, if you will. Um, and then just one final point I want to make as the transfer pricing guy here. Uh, just want to reiterate that 385 continues to be relevant for related <laughs> party debt. Arms length and 482 continue to be relevant. So you might very well be in play in 385, arms length and 482. But given some of the average data I was discussing, you might still be subject to these limitations. So a few data points there uh, when you look at the markets last year. 
Well, and, and there's something interesting there about supply of debt as well. So we're, we're thinking of this from the issuer standpoint. If we think of this as an overall market dynamic, it may mean for folks who want to hold debt as an investment, like large corporate treasuries, as well as all of our asset management clients, the supply of the things that they wanted to buy most, which was a lot of that middle market debt because it had the juicier coupon, is going to dry up a little bit. Um, one thing that I'll mention, just because it's come up a lot, is we've looked at a lot of sample calculations for clients, like a lot. Um, and oftentimes, folks are grabbing easily available book data to be able to run kind of a back of the envelope, how much do I think I'm impacted by these rules. And as you get more refined in running your calculations, one of the things we've seen pop up over and over again is making sure that the numbers you're pulling in as interest expense are really interest expense for tax purposes. So oftentimes, book if you're pulling in interest expense for book, we'll include a couple of things we need to kick back out. The first is it'll pull in things like foreign currency gains and losses in certain circumstances because they view them as contra items to your interest expense. Similarly, with respect to interest rate swap payments, oftentimes they'll blend them into your interest calculation. And all that means going to Chris's point around this is going to be somewhat dynamic is your back of the envelope of telling people you're in or out. Uh, once you start to refine it, you may find that when you pull those items out, you've got much more cushion, which may create an opportunity for you, or you may find that you don't have as much cushion or that you need to make your treasury folks aware of that you're going to bump up at a limitation at some point. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like further information about this topic, please email the participants whose email addresses can be found in the description of this episode.